Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey, and today on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with coverage of the Raise the Wage rally that recently took place in Albany. Then Willie Terry was at the New York State Caucus weekend, where he spoke with the Educational Opportunity Program. Later on, a local Ukrainian woman reflects on what a year of war does to a person and her family. After that, we hear about Foodstock, six hours of peace and music in Troy by Bria Barthel. After that, we hear, uh, finally, Lavender Spotlight's former sanctuary intern, Grayson Gerlich. But first, here are the headlines. The Public Employees Federation warned state lawmakers on Wednesday of an impending max exodus of workers to other states uh, or the private sector if the state does not ramp up investments in workforce retention efforts, including allowing greater teleworking flexibility. There is a shortage of 12,500 state workers at a time when 26% of the workforce is eligible for retirement in the next five years. The local housing market is cooling off as the pandemic-fueled buying frenzy has dropped off. Local houses' prices rose 20% over the last two years. It still remains a seller's market, however, which the median sales price of homes in the capital region increased by 6.4%. To, um, to $266,000 in January. A former, teach, a former female teacher at Notre Dame uh, Bishop Gibson's school in Schenectady, who sexually exploited a 15-year-old girl, has been sentenced to 19 years in federal prison. Some lawmakers want New York to begin reimbursing doulas through Medicaid. Doulas are trained professionally who guide mothers through the stages of pregnancy and post-pregnancy complications. The Gazette reports that the Dance Flurry leaders are calling on community members to help save the long-running Flurry Festival, which is facing major financial issues. The festival is one of the longest folk dance and music festivals in the Northeast and brings thousands of people to Saratoga Springs for a weekend of dance sessions and workshops, as well as live music performances and more. COVID had, COVID had a major negative impact uh, on the annual event. Average gasoline prices have fallen 3.7 per, uh, cents per gallon in the last week, averaging $3.49 uh, cents per gallon. Prices in the Albany area are 9.9 cents per gallon lower than a month ago and stand at 32.1 cents per gallon lower than a year ago. A new audit by State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli finds young children with disabilities aren't getting the support services they're entitled to. DiNapoli is calling on the State Department of Health to improve its early intervention program and even the playing field uh, to, and even the playing field for all children with disabilities. That's it for the headlines. We begin today with the campaign to raise the wage. Various groups led by Raise Up New York, assembled in Albany on Wednesday to tell Hochul to increase the minimum wage. Happy Hochul, show some love. $15 not enough. Happy Hochul. here today is to see not only for the minimum wage to be raised, but also to be indexed so we don't have to keep coming back. 
fight for working class families. And not only that, we're making sure that we're giving our people, the people who have been sustaining our communities, who have been at the front lines, who have been fighting, a raise. Our governor is talking about indexing wages, but we also got to bring in that our people also need a raise. Under her current proposal, we're only going to be seeing $13 a week raises versus ours, which would be closer to $63, $65. If you've been at the shopping market, how much are eggs right now? $20. A lot. A lot. Our people need more than just a carton of eggs every single week, right? Is it time for workers to get the money? Yes. Absolutely. You know, this state was built and is built every day on the backs of workers. And the governor right now wants to balance the budget on the backs of workers and their families. I say that it's time to actually give back to workers in this. It's not that the rent is too damn high anymore. It's that the cost of breathing in New York is too damn high. Yo, it feels like every time I leave my house, I have to be ready to spend $100 anywhere I go on anything that I want to do. And we just don't have it right now. We don't have $100 to spend like that. Working families are suffering, and you know what? So are small businesses. They're really suffering right now, because we know that cash for workers is cash for our streets. So it's not just the right thing to do, it's also good for business. And that's why we need to get it together to make sure that we all get that bag together in this budget. There's always money for everyone else, it seems, when we negotiate budgets here in Albany. But we want there to be money for workers. That's right. New Yorkers are being very clear. We heard the polls earlier. It said that 80%, 80 percent, eight zero, 80 percent want a $20 minimum wage. It's our responsibility to deliver. $13 a week, which is what the governor's proposal would give us, is peanuts. Y'all, that wouldn't even buy us lunch in Queens. That's not a real raise. That's not a real raise. We want to make sure that people are actually able to provide for themselves, keep a roof over their heads, put food on the table, and hopefully help our small businesses by spending some money in our communities too. So we know that funding the minimum wage is actually a long-term investment in the future of our state and one of the best investments that we can make as a society. So New Yorkers are really falling behind. Every single New Yorker, I think, is feeling the squeeze right now, from Brooklyn to Buffalo and everybody in between. And I know many folks are here, um, but really I want to highlight the difference between the two proposals because I know the conversation is getting hot. The truth is that we can't just peg the minimum wage at where we are right now. $15 wasn't even a living wage when we won the $15, all right? $15 isn't enough for us to be able to do much of anything. We want real money, John Lou, for the people of Queens and every county in New York so that they can not only make a living enough to exist, help their families to thrive. That's what this is about. This is about workers getting the money. Are you with me? Yeah. 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 Minimum wage has affected all of us one time or another. And I'm going to go to a story of my childhood. In the early 1980s, I watched my mom work two, three jobs.
because the minimum wage was not enough to keep up with the times then. Forty years later, with the cost of housing, increasing groceries, $15 an hour is not enough. No. Living wage now. Yes. yes. My message to the governor is this is a perfect month to make a change. You are a woman governor in the state of New York, and this is Women's History Month. What better statement could you bring? Bring these families in New York a living wage. I'm happy the governor recognizes that we need to raise the minimum wage. But her proposal is a little too late and too short. Yes. We, I support Senator Ramos's bill. I support the bill that all of you support, which is a long-term sustained Amen. increase in minimum wage. Minimum wage should not be a single number that we keep trying to catch up every few years. And that's what's been happening for decades here in New York. We need to set the minimum wage properly, and then we need to continue to index and raise it for as long as it takes. If prices are going up, the wages have to go up. That's, That's the right. Right. Yes. All of our workers need to pay the rent, they need to pay for food, they need to pay for transportation and healthcare, none of these. Those, those costs keep going up, and yet wages, especially among the most essential workers in our communities, never keep up with the pace of inflation. We have to change that. We have to raise it to 2125. By the way, for the record, I suggested to Senator Ramos it should be 2125 by 25. It should be 26 by 26. Okay. The point is that the minimum wage is something that has to be taken more seriously, has to make more sense. And Senator Ramos's bill will make it more sense, and I'm proud to support that bill as well. My name is Alyssa Baron Menza, and I represent New York Business for a Fair Minimum Wage. We are a growing coalition of hundreds of businesses and business organizations across New York that support the Raise the Wage Act. We are bookstores, clothing stores, restaurants, bars, coffee shops, and bakeries. We are farms and manufacturers. We are business groups like the Long Island African American Chamber of Commerce, and we are all across the state. We stand here today in support of raising New York's minimum wage to $21.25 and then adjusting it annually so it doesn't lose purchasing power. We must remember that workers are also customers. It's not just bad for workers, it's bad for business when working people can't afford the basics. Raising the minimum wage puts money in the pockets of people who most need to spend it. Those minimum wage increases go right back into the economy as spending at local businesses. Fair pay is good for business. Right. Yes. Wage pays off for businesses through lower turnover, reduced hiring and training costs, and better productivity and customer service. It makes sense. When you take care of your people, they take care of your business and your customers. Let's be clear. Keeping the minimum wage low does not help small business. The last few years have made it clearer than ever that low-wage businesses have more trouble hiring and retaining workers. For small businesses to succeed in competition with big chains and online companies with fast delivery, you have to give customers a reason to choose your business. That comes back to customer service and your employees who can afford to stay and help you keep up with what customers want. Keeping the minimum wage, uh, raising the minimum wage will boost spending and encourage the better business practices that help small businesses survive and compete. And let's be clear on another point. Extensive research shows raising the minimum wage 
does not cause job loss or business closure. Yes. Just right. because some repeat that idea over and over does not make it true. Businesses across the state know raising the minimum wage will strengthen workers, strengthen businesses, and strengthen communities. It's time to raise up New York. Raise Up New York was the leaders of that rally on raising up the minimum wage. The Raise the Wage rally that took place on Wednesday, the audio was taken from Columbia County Sanctuary Movement on Facebook, and you can find the full coverage, the full the video of that rally on their Facebook page, Columbia County Sanctuary Movement. So on February 18th, Roaming Labor Correspondent Willie Terry was at the New York State Association of Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian Legislator 52 Legislative Conference at the Empire State Plaza in Albany. And in this segment, he spoke with the Educational Opportunity Program. Yeah, this is Willie Terry, the Roman Labor Correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk Magazine. And I'm here at the Black, Puerto Rican, and Asian uh, Legislative Caucus weekend. And I'm here at a table that says Educational Opportunity Program Director Council. And I have as my guest, her name is... Hello, my name is Tiombe Farley Tatum, and I am the director of the Educational Opportunity Program, also known as EOP, at SUNY Schenectady County Community College. Hi, I'm Diane Ward. I work for SUNY System Administration for the uh, Opportunity Programs, and I handle communications and marketing. Okay, so tell me something about EOP. What is EOP? stand for and what is the uh, goals and objectives of it? Sure. So EOP stands for Educational Opportunity Program. The program is designed to provide access to students that are applying to college and some students may not be eligible for different reasons into uh, for eligible to enter into college and this program is an access program to provide them that access to the college. So for example the student must qualify for EOP both academically and financially and if they qualify we can provide them access to the college and they will be a member of our program where we provide a robust amount of services to help the student achieve their academic goals. We provide tutoring, uh, financial support, we provide academic advisement, um, a plethora of services we, we provide in order to help the students be successful. And what area do you cover? So EOP is on 54 SUNY campuses across the state, community colleges, four-year colleges, colleges of technology, the university centers. We currently serve about 7,500 students at SUNY, and we take in about 3,000 students every year, full-time freshmen. So many of our students come to us directly from high school. And as Tiambe mentioned, we serve a historically disadvantaged population because we're trying to provide them with access to SUNY and a college degree. And our students, um, are incredibly successful at earning their degrees and going on to have um, really, uh, you know, careers of their choice. And we know that they are 
incredibly proud of their participation in the program. EOP started in 1967 at Buffalo State University. Um, former Assembly Deputy Speaker Arthur O'Eve had an idea about because he lived in, he lives, he currently lives and has always lived in Buffalo, of providing access to students who weren't going to college, wanted to go to college, were capable of going to college, but just couldn't get in. And so he asked the legislature for funding for this program, and here we are, 50 plus years later, we've had 80,000 plus graduates from every corner of the state, and we serve a very diverse population and we are always interested in talking to um, people who feel this is a program that might be they might be eligible for and reach out to us and that way we can find out if you are eligible and sign you up and get you on board. So the uh, program, does it cover private colleges? Yes, the program is also um, in some private colleges here in New York State. When it's a private college, it's called HEOP, and uh, the state-funded colleges are EOP. Now, you know, uh, college is expensive, very expensive. What is the criteria for uh, students coming into the program? Sure, it's designed for historically marginalized and disadvantaged students. And the students have to meet the eligibility criteria both academically and financially. Each college has a different parameter that students would have to meet for academic and financial. So for instance, um, we also provide on our applications a grid for students to students and parents or caregivers to review that will uh, show them if they're eligible. So it will go by um, household number. Okay. It would go by household number, um, and it would also go by the um, overall income that comes into the household. It will also have to gauge how much you receive. Um, it will also gauge what your um, GPA is when applying. So you have to meet a certain GPA, but not go over or, or not go above or underneath a certain set GPA. What's that GPA? So for instance, at my college, at SUNY Schenectady, we accept students, so I'll, I'll just give a number range. Um, they can't have lower than a 73 average, and it can't go higher than an 84, I believe, average. But don't absolutely quote me on that because we just revamped that, so I gotta go back and check that out. But that's just an example of a scale. Um, so that way, it's sometimes students trying to apply to certain colleges, not our college, our college is uh, rolling admissions and accepts uh, people from the community all across the state, but certain colleges have parameters that students don't meet and they would not be able to attend, but EOP provides them that access. Do you uh, start working with students only when they come to college or do you work with them uh, while they're in high school? We don't work with them in high school. What we do is go to various high school and educational institutions and uh, make people and students and faculty and staff aware of our program. Um, only students coming into EOP can only come in the fall semester 
the beginning semester um, of each year. And that's designed because students need to attend a mandatory summer program. So what we do is a, re a robust summer program in the summer, this year it will constitute a four weeks or more. And what it does is provide students the, act, the ability to get acclimated to the college and to know what resources are available to them. We also provide an academic track for them so that they can go over you know, basic academic um, um, classes such as uh, reading, writing. Uh, we assist them with getting used to the syllabus things of that nature, uh, the layout of the campus. So it's a really robust program, and that's why we have it in the summer, to give them that time, and then they start the fall semester, a head start of everyone else. So how do you get this information out? Because I know uh, I know in my community, a lot of people probably don't know about EOP, a lot of parents don't know. You know, And once they get into school, a lot of the financial people try to get them to take up loans and how do you get this information out so that people won't be caught up in that situation? Well, it's really important that you establish relationships with the uh, with the schools within the dis in the district within where we are. Um, I have a very strong relationship and connection to Schenectady City School District. So a lot of time their students will come and they will tour our campus and I can let them know about the program. I, it's important to have relationship with the counselors at these schools to help facilitate and, and, and raise awareness of the program. Other ways, Diane? Yeah, I guess in addition to that, we have um, a recruiter in New York City who works out of the SUNY Global Center, and he works with community-based organizations in addition to, to the New York City public school system, New York City charter schools, um, to try to find students who are eligible for our program and educate the people in these organizations so that they can spread the word to their students, to their community. We, our best uh, spokespeople are students who have graduated from the program. They know what this has meant to them in terms of their own personal success and their own academic success. They tell one person, another person tells another, and and before you know it, you have you know a, a good number of people who become aware of what EOP is and what it can do for them. Now, what if parents want to uh, get in touch with uh, the program? Do you have a website, telephone number, email, or how? How do sure. they? So what I could lay out, I'll spell it out. My my email address. Um, for where I work, which is at SUNY Schenectady County Community College. Uh, my email address is Farley, which is F as in Frank, A-R-L-E-Y, the letter T is in Tom, S is in Sam, at SUNY, S-U-N-Y, and then the letter S is in Sam, C-C-C, as in cat, dot E, D is in dog, U. And that's my email address. My direct phone number is 518-381-1279. You can also find our information on our SUNY Schenectady uh, website. So if you're Google SUNY Schenectady County Community College, you could uh, put in the search engine EOP and you can find our information, our application, and my contact information as, rest of, as, as well as the rest of the staff.
And we do have, if you um, just Google SUNY EOP, you'll, you'll get tons of uh, connections to links that will bring you to our webpage where all of the information about eligibility can be found, what campuses we're on, how many students we serve, all that information is there. And so we hope that your uh, listeners take advantage of this and contact us because we'd love to have them a part of the program. I hope they do too. Uh, and thank you, Diane and Tionbe. Tionbe. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Willie Terry speaking with Educational Opportunity Program. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey, and you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. On WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Local Ukrainian Anna Allen reflected on the Ukraine war one year after invasion. She spoke with me about the constant stress of having her family in a war zone and what war leaves in its wake. We just marked one year since the invasion of Ukraine. This war has torn lives apart, brought waves of deaths from civilians and soldiers, taken culture and identity from Ukrainians and has disrupted food and other goods productions that people around the world rely on. Anna Allen, a local Ukrainian, joins me to reflect on this terrible anniversary. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Sina. Can you think back to life before the invasion of Ukraine? What was life for you and your family like early last year in 2022? I mean, I think in the beginning of 2022, we kind of expected the invasion. I was checking on my family fairly regularly, but I mean, I guess if you compare to, you know, 2021, uh, the difference is I, I worry a lot more about them. And uh, I call them more, which probably is a good thing. If you read about some um, big uh, uh, airstrike or big, uh, um, rocket strike you and you read that it was in a town where your relatives live you call them you contact them okay you okay so uh, on top of that sort of things that have been different this winter was uh, also the lack of electricity and for that, that like also meant sometimes the lack of heat because uh, either people's private houses, the furnace may not work without, even the furnace will be like a gas furnace, but it may not work without electricity. Or if the whole city has no power and there's a centralized heating, again, they may not work without um, electricity. So that was like an added challenge. I mean, I think my family lives a totally different lifestyle not everybody lives in their homes some people live rented places in other parts of ukraine some of my cousins you know left for for europe some are staying with the family members that they normally don't live with just the lifestyle of people very different so you knowing that your family is in 
a potentially deadly situation in a in a war zone, how do you process it? I think things kind of change. I think I really worried about them in the very beginning of the war. And then you kind of realize that the way statistics works, they might be okay. Um, in a sense, you realize that maybe somebody else will get hurt, but not them. It's horrible to say that, but that's kind of how statistics work. So you still worry about them, but you hope that, okay, maybe they will be fine. How is your body feeling with the constant stress on yourself? How have you noticed a change in yourself over this last year? I definitely. I mean, I wake up in the morning. The first thing I do is uh, I check the news. And then uh, just like maybe two months ago, I kind of said, okay, I'm not going to change the news. I told the uh, you know, my nephew, like if something really big happens, let me know. But otherwise, I'm not just going to change news anymore because it is. It is very stressful to constantly try to follow the news and try to follow what's happening. You you kind of, in a sense, you don't enjoy your life as much. You know, even if your family goes on vacation, you you in a sense, you kind of feel guilty. How can I be on vacation when I know my family not only cannot go on vacation, but they can't even have to think twice. Should I go to a store to buy bread or should I be safer just sitting home? And we've talked previously about your brother. He lives in the war zone in Kharkiv. What have you, what changes have you noticed from your brother and other family members who are still in Ukraine? I, I I don't know how what to say. I, I would not necessarily know how to um, comment on that. Um, I mean, I know, for example, I was talking to my aunt today, and they're basically like they are not likely to go see doctors. They would only go see doctors who is like absolutely absolutely necessary. Otherwise, they try to figure out themselves like what to do, what medicines to take. Um, and I'm sure it's not good for you, but in the, but I don't think the effects of chronic stress are really something you would realize now. I think that something will be more obvious uh, as time goes on. The decision to flee or not, there's so much more to consider beyond just one's own safety. Fleeing means leaving one's home, leaving pieces of one's own identity, and experts say that Russia has committed the biggest art heists since the Nazis in World War II, intending to strip Ukraine of its cultural heritage. Your brother, who's a sculptor, have you spoken with him about this art heist, uh, the taking of culture? I mean, that's definitely what Russia tries to do and wants to do. I don't think they're successful. I think, is, if anything... Ukrainians um, more value sort of Ukrainian values and traditions now than they have been before the escalation of the war. But there's definitely a brain drain and probably cultural drain. People who can leave and people who leave, a lot of them are, you know, smart, educated people. Do you have family who fled? Some, I have uh, actually a nephew of like my cousin's son. He is living with us for almost six months at this point. 
um, who is a teenager. And uh, his mom initially left Ukraine, but then returned to be with her husband and to be home. And uh, I have another cousin who left for Slovakia with her kids. Majority of uh, my family did not leave. And for those who did make the decision to leave Ukraine, how have you seen that disconnect from identity or like what is how do you see them being forced away from somewhere that they didn't want to do and what what it has done to them? I mean, both of these cousins, they left very early in the beginning of the war when you basically did not know will Kharkiv stand or would Kharkiv been occupied by, by Russia. So at that time, when their neighborhoods were like bombed on a daily basis, I think their decision to leave was a lot more understandable. They were really escaping the bombings. But in general, it is very difficult because for many people, it's hard to build your careers in a totally different country. You need to learn the language, you need to, to learn the culture. If somebody works as a professor in a university, it's difficult to get a similar type of job abroad. Um, it will take a long time to, to build that. The change from um, sort of one culture, one lifestyle to different culture, different language, different lifestyle is, you know, very big change. And it's not easy on people. And it's probably one thing if somebody immigrates because that was their choice versus if people immigrate because it was a necessity. And it's not something that they wanted in the first place. It's terrible that we're here still. Um that there's still a war in Ukraine. We do hope that your family stays safe. What would you like to leave listeners with in this moment? I mean, what I guess people are hoping for is, you know, sort of more support uh, on the part of, uh, you know, the world and a part of the United States. And although there has been a, you know, huge amount of support, both financial and military equipment. Um, so unfortunately, they need a lot more. And they, people do hope that, that Russia can be stopped and then Ukraine can get back its territory. And everybody wants to live in peace. I mean, I think the most important I think, part is to realize that even maybe the media is not reporting as much on this conflict that kind of became an old news for people who live through this, you know, right now, it's not kind of like an acceptable status quo. It is not because there's still daily air raids and daily people are dying on both sides of the conflict in huge numbers. And uh, if there is a way to stop this, I think the whole world will, will breeze a little bit better when this war will be over. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Anna Allen. I've spoken with her a few times now about her experience uh, being in the capital region while some family members of hers are still back in Ukraine. Anna Allen suggests a local group, 518 Ukrainians, 
as uh, a resource to support local uh, refugees, and that's 518ukrainians.com. So you've probably heard of Woodstock, but have you heard of Foodstock? Six hours of peace and music in Troy. Bria Barthel went to get the scoop of what's happening this Sunday. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm in the offices of the food pantries of the Capital Region, both to hear more about the food pantries, but also to help them promote a benefit concert coming up on Sunday, March 5th, called Food Stock, which looks a lot more like Woodstock when you read it rather than say it. So with me are two of the Food Pantry's staff members. First. Hi, I'm Angie Weber, Communications and Development Manager. And besides Angie, we have... Another Angie, Angie Pender-Fox. I'm the Associate Executive Director here at the Food Pantries for the Capital District. Okay, Angie Weber is going to talk with us first about Foodstock, the concert. So what is Foodstock? Well, Foodstock is a benefit concert that takes place at the Rustic Barn Pub. We've done it for nine times now. Bob Gamash is in charge of it, and I'd like to give him a shout out and say thank you to him because he does an unbelievable job every year. He has bands come and play, and it's a really great time. It does have the little bit, as you mentioned, feel of Woodstock. Uh, It's wonderful. The food is good. The drinks are good. And it's just a lovely few hours from 2 to 8 of great music, great fun, and uh, benefiting a great cause. And where is Rustic Barn Pub? It's in Troy, New York. It's on 150 Spiegeltown Road. Okay, and this is six hours of music to feed the hungry. Who are some of the acts that will be performing? Uh, We have a few this time. It's uh, Brian Kane, The Ties, The Hammerhead Horns, WSG Leslie Barkman, Soul Sky, which I think they were there before and they were great, Matt Mirable Band, and The Growing Hazers. The Growling Hazers. The Growling Hazers. Okay, and do you have a sense of what kind of music it is? It's all over the map. There's some bluegrass, there's some rock, there's some um, bluesy music, all over the map, all different kinds. Some There's some original music in there as well, which is always really fun. And again, this is Music to Feed the Hungry, so I'm going to switch over to Angie Pender-Fox, to hear about the food pantries, how they help feed the hungry, and why they need your help. So now more than ever, it's so important to come out and support the community. Uh, Right now, we're seeing uh, the food pantries really huge upticks in service. In 2022, we saw a 34% increase in the number of people coming to the food pantry for assistance. And right now is so critical because the emergency allotments for SNAP Um, have been removed uh, starting March 1st. And that means that families now have less money to support them in feeding their families. And that also means that food pantries will see even more people coming to them for assistance. So now is really a critical time for our community to come together, you know, with the government, state and federal, really um, asking kind of, honestly, where's the love? And so when we think about it, it comes to our community, and Foodstock is a great example of neighbors really supporting neighbors and showing that love that government is not giving. 
And my understanding is that the government has withdrawn some support it was previously giving, that the state used to subsidize farmers for donations to the regional food bank, and that's sort of dropped out? So uh, Nourish New York is still uh, there, but we would like to see that uh, increased to about $70 million. The same um, for other support systems as well. We saw that HIPNAP in the governor's budget could be uh, decreased quite significantly. I'm sorry, HIPNAP? Yes, so that's Hunger Prevention Nutrition Assistance Program, and that's state funding. And that is so important to our emergency food programs. And when we saw the uh, governor's executive budget, we saw that there could potentially be a quite a huge decrease. So we, we need to see that uh, increased up to about $63 million. And when you say $63 million and whatever the millions was for the other one, that sounds like a lot of money, except how many people about do you have getting services through the food pantry? Just through our area alone, we have seen nearly 70,000 people seeking assistance in 2022. But our pantries did report, um, even in the start of 2023, that they're already seeing upticks in need. I've volunteered at a few food drops, and I know that people will wait in line for hours to get a box of food, which is showing some of the desperation and the need. So food stock is one of the the ways that um, the food pantries raises money. Do you have any other events or activities going on? We do. We will be having our annual harvest evening celebration in October. That's our regular event once a year that we have. And then you also accept donations at any time throughout the year, right? That is correct. Any time throughout the year. Please know, though, that uh, food is absolutely amazing, but funding does go further because our pantries can purchase food at the regional food bank for much less than you could buy it at a local grocery store. So funding is critical to support our food pantries and emergency food programs. I have a friend who, when there's a two-for-one special at a store, buys what she was going to buy and then donates the free one to you. So there are ways, listeners, that you can donate, even if you yourself have some limitations. Uh, Getting back to food stock, though, that idea of either money or food or other items can be used for admission to the concert. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, You can, when you come in, you can give money at the door. You can bring food or non-perishable items. Um, If you can, we would suggest hygiene items. Those are in great need right now. And, you know, as Angie just said, the money goes further. So sometimes when you bring hygiene items, it's easier to distribute those to the pantries. By hygiene items, you mean simple things. We're not talking like fancy hair mousse. We're talking shampoo and soap and toothpaste and deodorant and sort of the products of daily living. Yes, exactly. Things that help people get through day to day, um, that they don't have to decide whether they're going to feed their family today or clean their clothes and take a shower for their interview tomorrow. I was helping at one food drop, and one of the items they had gotten from Regional Food Bank was small bottles of dish detergent. And somebody came up and said, dish detergent, now I can wash my uniform. So some of the things we take for granted are desperation items for your clients. So Angie Pender-Fox, as the Associate Executive Director, what are some of the changes you've seen in how people volunteer, what they bring in, or how many um, food collections you have? 
over the years, um, we've had people volunteer for a variety of things, whether it be doing just a food donation or a fund drive um, to help raise money. We have people go to the pantries and help stock shelves, be greeters, you know, do intake, welcome people. There's just a variety of ways to volunteer and we want people to volunteer. It is really community members helping community members. So um, yeah, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing. I guess we should go back to a basic question is, you mentioned volunteering at a food pantry versus volunteering for the food pantries. What's the connection there? Sure. We work with a coalition of 70 food pantries throughout the capital region, and we will often place volunteers at a food pantry. So while we have need here in the office, we also have 70 member pantries who also have need. And so we're really about supporting them and making sure they have, first and foremost, what they need to support our neighbors. So uh, we will absolutely accept volunteers. If it's suitable you know, for them to be in the office and help out here in the office, wonderful. But if they would prefer to be out in the pantry working with the people, then we will certainly place them there as well. And if people want to volunteer or to make a donation, how do they contact the food pantries? What do they do? Sure, they can give us a call. Um, it's 518-458-1167. Or they can go onto our website, which is www.thefoodpantries.org. And the same holds true if someone is seeking assistance and they would like to be connected to a food resource. Same contact information. We will get folks connected. Great. Thank you. And let's end with promoting the concert. Angie Weber, remind us of where, when, and why. It is Sunday, March 5th from 2 to 8 at the Rustic Barn in Troy, and it's called Food Stock 9. It's a benefit concert for the food pantries for the Capital District. And again, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, talking with Angie Weber about food stock and Angie Pender Fox about the organization that will benefit from food stock, the food pantries of the capital region. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Bria. Thank you so much. Bria Barthel does a lot of work with local food pantries as a correspondent and as a volunteer. The website uh, to find more information uh, here is thefoodpantries, that's a plural, dot O-R-G. And we end tonight's show by spotlighting one of the many people who have powered the sanctuary. This place is run on people power. Lavender has been profiling uh, former interns from the sanctuary. And in this interview, you will, we will hear from Grayson Gerlich. Hello, everyone. I'm Lavender, and I'm here with Grayson Gerlich, a previous intern at the Sanctuary for Independent Media, here to talk with me about his experience at the sanctuary and how he's doing now. Welcome, Grayson. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Lavender. Um, so when and how did you first hear about the sanctuary? I heard about the sanctuary originally through a class that I took at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, um, just up the hill. Uh, the class was called Public Service Internship. And as a part of the class, we were tasked with getting an internship in uh, some public uh, community organization within the surrounding area. And there were a lot of suggestions, a lot of environmental groups that I was interested in, but ultimately the the deep community involvement represented by the sanctuary is what brought me there. So that's how I found out about it. And then I reached out um, and they were gracious enough to have me on as an intern. Awesome. And what drew you in? Like, why did you want to, why did you want to be involved? That's a good question. At first, 
I'll admit it was it was definitely the radio. Uh, I had been involved in hobby radio. You know, I'm I'm a like ham radio operator, right? So I've been involved in hobby radio for a long time, and the thought of being involved with kind of a more I mean it. It's low power radio by commercial standards, but it's high power radio by my standards. So <laughs> being able to be involved in a high power radio organization and get involved with that on a technical level is really exciting. Um, and then obviously, once I got there, realizing just how much the community was uh, was built around this radio station and the sanctuary as a whole was really exciting. Awesome. So what did you end up doing once you joined? At first, uh, it was a lot of it was a lot of very technical radio things, I'll admit. Uh, at that time, I think they were building their second studio uh, in the basement, although I haven't been there in a little while. So I, I'll admit there might only be one studio now, but at the time it was studio number two. Good <laughs> memories on. of that studio. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I helped uh, I helped with the, some of the setup and the construction of that studio. Uh, I ran a lot of a lot of cabling, um, drilled a lot of holes and tables, installed a lot of audio equipment. Um, I think I took apart that soundboard like three times to get it to work properly. <laughs> but that was kind of where I started. And then I got to do some uh, some producing of some segments, which is super exciting as well. Uh, produced a segment with some local filmmakers and got to interview a PhD student at Minds who was working with the Nature Lab. And after all of that, I kind of got into more uh, what I would say is the broader sanctuary mission of of running events and being involved with community programming and things like that. That's awesome. When did you end up uh, leaving your role at the sanctuary and where did you go on after that? Let's see, I left, that's that's actually, that's an interesting question. So I left from the sanctuary in, I, want to, I think that's December of 2018, I believe. Maybe my, my dates might be a little wrong, but uh, <laughs> I, I left in the sanctuary and then almost immediately flew directly to France uh, oh, wow. um, and took a position working as a research a researcher in France. I was there for a handful of months. And then after that, I flew back to RPI, finished my degree and uh, moved on to the PhD that I'm working on now. But yeah, it was it was definitely it was it was a jarring transition, perhaps, to go from <laughs> cold, cold Troy in the middle of winter directly to uh, coastal southern France um, doing much different work. But I think that the the transition made me appreciate how much the sanctuary meant to me and how much that sort of community feeling was there because when I moved obviously to another country I wasn't speaking the language I wasn't you know assimilating to a completely different community and being able to find community organizations kind of like the sanctuary is is challenging but also so rewarding when you do find one and i i don't know if i realized that when i started the sanctuary um but by the time that december rolled around i definitely realized how much i was going to miss having that close to home absolutely that's cool though um so what are you working on now i see you i know you're in school yeah so i'm a, a phd student obviously you can't you can't see my my background or what's what's behind me in the zoom call and radio but uh i've got just books and books and books of uh, scientific journals so these days, I'm a biophysical researcher. So my PhD is in quantitative biosciences and engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. And that's a pretty huge mouthful to say that I am a glorified biochemist. So these days I work on proteins and uh, proteins specifically that are involved in the degradation of environmental contaminants. So trying to stay in a field that allows me to have Let's say a meaningful impact on the community around me, but still allow me to indulge in the science, which is what brought me to school in the first place. Nice. So 
how would you say your time at the sanctuary influenced your life going forward and uh, your career at all? That's also a great question. I think that there's probably so many answers to that question that we could fill the next hour of airtime with that. But um, I think the really the biggest one was the sense of I, I know sense of community is probably a cliche in in when people talk about the sanctuary, but when I moved back to Colorado, which is where I'm from originally, and I started looking around for an organization like the sanctuary, it turns out that there aren't a lot of organizations like the sanctuary anywhere in the US, let alone the world. And that's not yeah. to say that there aren't low power radio stations and there are community organizations, but something that is as deeply integrated into the, the community as the sanctuary is, is really just, that's a really special community and a really special organization to be a part of. And suddenly not having that available or or even present in the area really drove me to be involved in organizations that I don't think I otherwise would have been. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm going to school at a mining and engineering school doing biochemistry research. So uh, I'm already in a small enough group of people there, but just finding ways to interact with groups or communities that don't have a lot of support and finding a way to really be an advocate for small programs or for uh, like underfunded local high schools that are trying to get into science research. I don't think any of that would have been part of my career, let alone part of even my thought process if I wouldn't have been at the sanctuary. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what is what is one of the most important things you learned during your internship? I learned that on the days where Herschel the dog is at the sanctuary, those are oh. definitely the most important days to volunteer. Um, but, <laughs> but on a more serious note, I think that the value of feeling connected with a community, even if that community isn't isn't focused on the same things that you are, if that makes sense. I mean, Troy and RPI often feel so disconnected for students, and that's really detrimental for the students as a whole because that sense of community and feeling grounded in the place where you live is important to leading a meaningful life. And regardless of who is around you, there's always something that you can do to make that connection, to make the place that you live feel more like home. And to, to not wax philosophical for too long, I think that's the biggest takeaway that the sanctuary really, really provided me with. Yeah, that's definitely a common theme that I've been hearing in these, in these interviews is definitely, you know, the sense of community, like you were saying before, and yeah, learning a lot of people skills and connecting and stuff. Yeah. I think, you know, being an RPI student and and being in Troy, I, that's that's definitely a, you know, lots of people have that experience in Troy, but it's not the experience I think of most people that live in Troy otherwise. And so I think for a lot of the students that became interns at the sanctuary, it was eye-opening in a lot of respects to realize that there was, there was a, a town outside of the college, if that makes sense. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I, I certainly didn't realize that my first two years at RPI. Yeah. Um, what about uh, anything technical? You mentioned the, the the nature lab briefly, and you said you took apart the soundboard a bunch of times. So what about any like technical skills that you took with you when you left? Yeah, absolutely. I think the experience of the experience of putting together a radio studio was something that maybe I guess as an engineer, I didn't expect to be uh, as enlightening as it was. but it was bizarrely maybe my first experience with project management to a certain degree. And I wasn't even in charge of that project, 
but that definitely stuck with me for a long time. And just the lessons that you learn by doing something with your hands after writing it down on paper is something that bizarrely you don't get a lot in engineering. A lot of a lot of it is just writing it down. And if you do get to do it, you know, that's that's really exciting. I learned, or at least I got to practice a lot of the skills that I still use in all of my hobbies today. And I didn't mention this, but I'm an imaging and instrumentation engineer originally. And the overlap between the skills that you need to build a radio studio and the skills that you need to work in a microscope are surprisingly similar. Uh, <laughs> and so when it comes to basic things like soldering and reading wiring diagrams and mm -hmm. uh, you know cable management and just all the basic things that turn an okay system into a great one really translated remarkably well. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really cool. So then finally, what is one of your favorite memories of your time there at the sanctuary, an event or just a moment that you recall? Yeah, there was, for the life of me, I cannot remember the name of the event, but we were having an event and I was downstairs kind of running errands for the, the video production crew while the event was going on and just getting to see a, a actual video production in in uh, in progress and how that was organized and how they were switching between cameras and running this entire event was really cool. And then afterwards, getting to talk with these people about this skill that to me seemed kind of esoteric and relatively arcane, you know, like like camera four, pan left, you know, we're going to switch to camera three. I need to, I need to zoom on, on the speaker or whatnot. And getting to talk with them and learning that that was a hobby skill that they had put together just for the pure love of public media, that that changed my view of what a technical skill could be and what volunteering could really do. That's a really great note to leave this interview on. I love that. Thank you so much for being here, Grayson, and sharing all your thoughts and, and experiences. Thank you so much for, for having me, Lavender, and this was an absolute blast. Lavender has been interviewing various previous interns from the Sanctuary for Independent Media showcasing the many people who have powered this place. And that is our show. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and thank you so much to the volunteers who made this episode possible. Thank you to Willie and Bria and Lars uh, and Lavender, Willie Terry, Bria, Barthel, and Lavender. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at mediasanctuary.org um, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Thank you for listening and your listenership means the world to us. It's Nico, the youngest producer. You've been listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, featuring news and views from around the New York Capital Region. Listen at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. on Sanctuary Radio, 105.3 FM, Troy, and online at mediasanctuary.org. You can also visit mediasanctuary.org anytime to hear the Hudson Mohawk magazine on demand or to sign up for our podcast.